This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. And welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Moorfield. That's me. This is episode number three, October 2011, and our topic for this episode is Lars von Trier's Dogville. This episode is not a spoiler-free discussion, so please, if you have not seen the film and do not want plot spoilers, now would be a good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. Ken, uh, Dogville was a rather high-profile 2003 release for the Danish director Lars von Trier. Prior to Dogville, I knew von Trier best simply as one of the founders of the avant-garde film movement Dogme. That seemed to be all about making films in the most simple way possible without any special effects or things like that. Obviously, Dogville eschews a good deal of those things. But uh, before we get into the discussion, I was thinking perhaps you could give us a brief summary of what happens in Dogville. Well, the the scene opens with some voiceover narration setting the stage of Dogville as a small town in the American West. I think they actually say at one point it's in the Rocky Mountains. And the stage is very, is, is literally a stage. It's almost like a stage play uh, with very few props other than the people. We, we get the outlines of houses as almost like a floor plan or a blueprint. And we're introduced to most of the major characters in Dogville. And then one of them the narrator, or not, I'm sorry, not the narrator, the main character played by Paul Bettany hears gunshots and happens to notice a fugitive played by Nicole Kidman coming into or running through the town, obviously running away from something. And the residents of Dogville agree to take her in and hide her, protect her from the law and various unscrupulous people who are looking for her. Although gradually over the course of the film, their relationship with her turns from one of welcome and protectoring to gradually taking more and more advantage of her, you know, in various sorts of ways, uh, which we might talk about, ultimately culminating in her being turned over to the mobsters who are looking for her. The head mobster turns out to be her father who agrees, makes an agreement with her that if she will come back and be his daughter, he will take vengeance upon the town for all the ways in which they've abused her. And uh, his henchmen in the culminating scene basically wipe out the whole town, uh, after which there is a, a rather peppy <laughs> song that plays over the final credit credits uh, with a montage of iconic photographs of poor people in the American Depression age. 
So how's that for a summary? Did I did I hit most of that? Your point? I said that sounds like the film I watched. So okay, good. You, you know that that's just as a as an aside. I'm I'm always like uh, one of the critical cliches on message boards or reviews comments that I always wish that we could put an end to is the very cheeky commenter who disagrees with the review and says, "Did we even see the same film?" You know, or yeah, he clearly wasn't watching the same film. And I, I just I find that cliche so tired that it, it pleases me that you say we watched the film. <laughs> I think we did, so that's a good thing. <laughs> So I guess, looking at this film, one of the things that struck me, I alluded to the fact that Von Trier was part of this group um, in the probably what mid to late 90s that was known for eschewing all sorts of artifice. They would only shoot natural light and no special effects and very simple, straightforward acting, nothing out of the way. And this film goes out of its way, it seems to me, to to be artificial. The as you mentioned, the the, the set or what we're looking at the whole time is nothing but a floor plan. Yeah. Even to the even to the point of characters mining, like opening doors and whatnot with sound effects added in to make it seem like they're actually opening doors. At one point there is a scene where Grace is chastised for walking through the bushes and the bushes are the outline of bushes on the stage that she walks over. Exactly. And and there's even one of the quote-unquote characters that becomes somewhat important near the end of the film is, is a dog that is just an outline of a dog drawn on the, the, the ground. So we're obviously in this very artificial world. We have our main character is named Grace. And it it seems to me as the film was developing that that name was more than just a name. You um, think? <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. And we're we're being invited very strongly to read this thing as some sort of allegory, parable, whatever you want to call it. And that just it, it seemed a, a bit odd. And I was just curious what your initial take on, you know, that whole, I guess you would call it the mood of the film is. Okay. Well, there's, there's two different directions we can go with that. One of them is talking about the the look of the film and that sort of Spartan look that's not there, sort of what's up with that. Uh, the other is sort of the an allegorical reading of the film. And, and I think one of the things I've been pondering is sort of like, okay, how do we read this film, particularly the ending of the film? And and those sort of take me in two different directions. So which way do you want to go with that? Well, which question do you want to address first? Yeah, I think for me, you know, the look of the film and, and, and its Spartan nature, to me, is just, well, I don't want to say it's just, it is just a huge cry to read it allegorically. Right. Um, and it's reinforcing, kind of an artistic reinforcement of, yes, please read this as an allegory. When I teach drama to my students, um, one of the things that I often talk about with plays is that they often are very focused on ideas. Yes, there is a story, but there's something about drama, uh, theater drama, that is just 
seems over time to have been used by playwrights to really dig into ideas. And this film seems to me to play very much like a theater, live theater drama in that it's, it's saying, please think about the ideas. Well, the most, so why don't we go there? Okay. The most allegorical uh, component, of course, is names, and I think that grace is, is a big allegorical component. I think it's typical of allegories that characters aren't very well developed and, you know, stand in for ideas or concepts. Mm-hmm. We see that in the Paul Bettany character, who is the living embodiment of a philosophy or a kind of person as opposed to an individual person. Beyond that, one of the notes that I put while I was thinking about the the Spartan nature of the film is I I put down in my notes, what's not there, but we pretend is, or what's not there and we act like it is. And so I do think some of that Spartan nature is playing around with not just announcing that it's an allegory, but playing around with some of the themes that the film is commenting on its subject matter. For example, a couple of examples of what's not there, but we act like it is, on a on a structural, on a formal level, they're acting like the doors and the houses and all the things are there. They're pretending. You know, these people mm-hmm. are pretending. But within the world of the film that the actors, it's not just the actors are pretending, a lot of people are pretending or going through life as though things are there which are not. For example, there's a blind character in the film. And at one point, Paul Batney says, everyone knows that he's blind, but he makes a big deal of talking about the light and pretending that it's not, and we all play along. One of the people that Grace tries to help is this woman who practices playing the piano, but she never actually plays, or the organ, she never actually turns it on. She just sort of hits the keys or the practice keys or does the pedal but never does the things when the music comes out uh, and Grace will act like it's there. She'll come and turn the pages and the narrator will even intone in a very serious manner as, as no music was actually coming out of the instrument. She didn't need Grace to turn the pages but it's this sort of uh, you know, gentleman's illusion of pretend that they all kind of keep going with or, or keep going on. That was opening up for me the the very notion of what keeps her there. The town has voted that, yes, she can stay, but, you know, she's got to make her way somehow. And, you know, an interesting part of the film that gets developed is she, she makes one round about the town asking if she can help anybody, and they all say, well, we, there's nothing that we need. Right. And, again, it's just pretending. They... In a sense, they've they've had so little for so long that you know they're used to making do or they're used to going without, and they just pretend we have no needs. We're we're perfectly content, and then she does fi- start finding these little jobs, little ways to help everybody, and the response of the town again seems to be that pretending. Well, well we don't need that to happen. And part but, of the way she finds them is by agreeing to play along with the game, of sort of like saying, mm-hmm. okay, you don't really need this, but allow me to do this so that it will feel better. And so then she ends up doing these things, but it's always under the auspices of, you're doing me a favor by allowing me to work for you, you know, not right. I'm actually needing a service. Correct. So, <laughs> And I think then that, that sort of 
thematic pretending gives way or gets conflated in the second half of the film to a sort of rhetorical pretending, which is very soon it becomes the connection between the say and the do becomes farther and farther apart. And as a result, then, that the townspeople become more and more hypocritical, in part because that sort of wedge between, you know, reality and what we're pretending gets farther and farther apart. I, I wrote down at one point, as race is starting to be punished for the town for trying to run away, uh, and, you know, it's given a millstone to carry around in various forms of, of punishment. The, the narrator says uh, something like, um, a generous God had blessed her with the ability to look only ahead. To me, that's a kind of ironic statement that is within the context of a movie that's all about pretending or all about this distance between what we're saying is going on and what's actually happening, it sort of invites you to read almost every rhetorical utterance as ironic. Well, mm -hmm. is that really a generous God, you know, who doesn't intervene on her behalf, but, you know, blesses her with the ability to forget these things? Is that really the ability to look only ahead? Is that really a blessing? Or are we using the word blessing as saying, well, it's a relative blessing because it would be a hell if she were dwelling on that. And in fact, even when they tie the millstone around their neck and she says, you know, well, part of my punishment be that I have to sleep outdoors. And they're all like, no, don't think of this as punishment. So they, they, they move in the second half from a kind of subtle hypocrisy or subtle pretending to almost this more overt or bald disconnect of as long as we, we don't call it that we're all, we're not doing it. You know, as the film progresses, the other pretending that seems to go on is in the beginning when they welcome her in and they are saving her. There is this, in a sense, of pretending that A, they are saving her and B, that she's a person. Mm -hmm. And as the film progresses, that that pretense about the saving her really starts falling away as they more and more say, well, you know, it's so dangerous for us to protect you. You're going to have to work harder to compensate. And, for, and then by the, the end of the, the greater, the greater our risk, the greater you should, you, know, you should repay. And the other aspect of it is by the end of the film, they're not even treating her like a human being. And the narrator at one point even mentions the fact that as, well, by the end of the film, all of the men of the town seem to be just lining up outside of her door to take advantage of her. And the narrator makes the comment that they no longer, you know, she seemed to them an animal of some kind, and that somehow that made it okay for them then to take advantage of her. Right. Well, I'm glad that we, we sort of talked about that progression, because... I think in some ways, in terms of the allegorical reading of the film, then it's very important that we establish, for me, this theme of rhetorical distance between what we actually say and the reality mm -hmm. that we're living. Because most of the last half of the film, not the last half, but certainly the last chapter of the film, is really a an extended argument between Grace and her father 
about whether or not these people should be forgiven and or whether they should be punished in, in some mm-hmm. way. And it, it seems to me very easy to read that argument as sort of a straight theological argument or a straight you know, theological discussion or, or allegory that Christians might get into. But I think it's, it's you got to, when you're reading that argument or hearing that argument that people are making at the very end, you know, read it within the context of, by this point in the film, just about everything that people are saying is a lie or a cover-up for something else. And so it's hard for me to not read the end of the film that way. Mm-hmm. Well, and it does bring in that interesting theological question of, you know, what is the nature of, of grace, the concept of grace? Can you abuse grace to such a point that you have you somehow destroy grace or that grace is removed and one of the things that i one of the reasons quite frankly i I, i'm not a huge fan of this film the more i watch it and the more i think about it is that that's a question that i wanted the film to wrestle with and comment on but by the end it just seems to be so negative about human nature that the theological allegory seems to me to be largely a MacGuffin to get us to this last scene, and I don't think he's really interested in translating that to any kind of level of theological level. But then I'm like, if you're going to use the term, the name of grace, and grace is Father, then that seems to me like people are going to go there in reading it. it. The film seems very muddled. Uh, now, part of why what I based that on, we had talked, you and I had talked about part of the reason we wanted to do this film. It's been in the news recently because after the terrorist attack or the, the murder spree in Norway, the gentleman who was arrested for that happened to mention that Dogville was like his third favorite film or, you know, one of his favorite films. And uh, so people had gotten very up in arms and much the same way after Mark David Chapman had read J.D. Salinger that people want to make the connection between that. And so Von Trier made a statement where he was talking about the end of this film. Um, yes. Not just a statement that says, oh, I feel bad that this guy looked at my movie, you know, which would have been fine. It's like, okay, you know, I feel bad that this guy used my movie and did all of this stuff. But in the process of saying he felt bad, he goes on to interpret his own movie and says, well, I'm, re- I'm reading his statement, which was from an uh, article on HollywoodElsewhere.com. Von Trier says, I feel badly about thinking that Dogville, which in my eyes is one of my most successful films, should have been a kind of script for him. It's horrific. My intention with Dogville was totally opposite, namely to ask whether we can accept a protagonist who takes revenge on the entire village. And here I take the absolute distance from revenge. It's a way to nuance the protagonist and our feelings and perhaps even uncover it so it's not just black and white. Now, some of that's a problem with translation. Montreux is clearly speaking in a language that's not his first language. Uh, right. But when I, when I read that, you know, one of the things he announces in here is, okay, one, Grace is the protagonist. Okay, I, I can sort of see that. But then he says... His intention was to ask whether we can accept a protagonist who takes revenge on the entire village. She does take revenge on the entire village. So he says, part of what he's doing in this movie is, can we accept Grace after she writes that? And then he says, and here I take the 
absolute distance from revenge. That is to say, you know, in his mind, he's reading the end of that film and saying, oh, I've presented revenge as being this horrible, awful, terrible, unjustifiable thing, and we just can't accept race. And I, I just don't see a lot of people likely to have that response to the end of the film. It, you know, that there's part of me that says, if that's what you were trying to communicate with the end, that, oh, my, my assumption is that at the end of this film, everyone's going to be horrified at Grace because she took revenge. I don't think that's the response that he got from me. Was that the response he got from you? No. And in, well, and in fact, I would, I would have to say, using his language, I had the exact opposite feeling. The film seems to go out of its way to establish the, you know, not just the sort of general badness of the town, but that they are very specifically evil towards this one character. So that on a human level, the idea that she would want to get back at each and every one. And I mean, and the film is very careful to show each and every person in the town doing something bad to her. Right. Yeah. Even the, the philosopher who ostensibly is in love with her, you know, in the end betrays her. And his sort of waffly spinelessness is just as repulsive as everybody else. And at the end of it, you want these people to be punished. I mean, he says, the, the Paul Batney character says, a man can't really be blamed for being scared. You, you know, can he? And, and she makes what seems to me a half-hearted attempt for her father of sort of saying... Well, they're acting according to their nature. They're they're scared. You know, maybe they're not evil, but the, you know they're scared. The mobster guy goes back to the dehumanizing rhetoric and says, "Well, dogs can be taught many things, but not if you forgive them every time they act according to their nature." Uh, so we have to punish them in order to. And, and then once she lets go of the punishment, she's even very specific in the ways that she punishes them. There's a, at one point one of the women breaks a figurine that she's slave to buy and says, I'll only break one if you don't cry, but she can't keep herself from crying, so the woman breaks all of them. And then Grace comes back and says, well, kill her children in front of her and, and tell her that if she doesn't cry, then, you know, you won't kill the rest of them. And so, I mean, in some ways, there is kind of on an intellectual or an abstract level that, that sort of the, the best revenge films are the ones that make you complicit in the revenge, but then pull the rug out from under you and make you realize, uh, oh, wow, it was wrong of me to want revenge. But that's right. usually at the point where we see the cost that the revenge takes on the person who does it, on their soul, where you see how it gets complicated out of hand and innocent suffer. It's like you never get any of the consequences of revenge. You just get all of the stuff that's just so horrifically over the top. And it's a very long film. You know, it's like three hours. So, so right. it's just kind of like you, you're almost beaten into saying, okay, fine, in general sense, I know revenge is wrong, but these people are so exaggeratedly evil. Let, you know, let's go ahead and get it over with and get the revenge done. And then he does the re revenge. And the movie's ending, and Von Trier comes back and says, well, you know, I took the position that revenge is terrible, and I can't imagine why anyone would, would get out of it, this movie that human beings are scum that deserve to be destroyed. It does seem to be going counter to what he's saying. And, and part of it, getting back to this, the look of the film, I would say even adds more into it because, because it is so obviously an idea film. 
Right. And when we get to the end and Grace has her revenge, what she's going back to, she's getting rewarded. She's being welcomed back by her father into a lifestyle of opulence and comfort where these people had been scratching out a living in the dirt. There's no sense, at least the way I was looking at the film, and you know, even in showing her you know, her face and the emotions that she was going through, I saw nothing in there that would suggest that it was costing her anything to have this revenge. So it, it, yeah. it, it makes Montreux's comment rather problematic. It was rather problematic. I think that uh, one of the one of the possibilities that I suggest is there could be a language or a translation issue in the comment. Sure. A- another is that I think part of that works to the film's detriment is this sort of mix of, it's a very strange mix of the allegorical and the concrete. That is, like, if you had gone all allegory, then I think there would be some ways that you could play around with that idea. Uh, but it's interesting, the writer, the Paul Bettany character, the philosopher, keeps talking about in the opening scene and in the end scene that the key to great writing is illustration. Um, mm-hmm. That is to say, you, you don't make a rhetorical argument or a rational argument step by step, but you can create an illustration so that people understand. And and that seems like on a very fundamental level to sort of say uh, abstract arguments don't carry as much weight as as very concrete illustrations, you know, or sermon illustrations. I think on one level, it wants to be a parable, you know, or an allegory, but on another level about human nature, on another level, there's a lot of rhetoric of socialism or Marxism. They make a big deal out of saying that it's in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, you get this whole montage in the final credits that I'm not sure what to do with of these very iconic American pictures during the Depression. And, you know, at the end, it's like, okay, are you trying to make a spiritual illustration or are you trying to make a political illustration? Are you talking about the evils of poverty and capitalism that grind people down? Or are you making a comment about human nature, you know, and that human beings are this way? And and I think he ended up trying to do both. And I think the two pull at each other in, in ways that make the film rather opaque. If we're able to go the political route... In that same article uh, that you mentioned from HollywoodElsewhere.com, Ventura goes on to say, and, and this might also kind of help in the notion that perhaps in the direct comment on his film, there might be some language issues. Um, but Ventura says, I am no expert in politics, but as I see it, there has for years been a strong Danish tradition of fears of Islam. They have committed atrocious legislative efforts to annoy the minority here and pursue a policy that is well in line with what Brevik, the the murderer, uh, what he preaches. And it got me thinking about that idea of creating laws and things that are essentially unfriendly to the stranger in in town. And certainly, if you look at Dogville from a purely kind of political allegory, perhaps, of what's happening, uh, at least as Von Trier sees it happening in Denmark... You say, okay, well, see here, a stranger came in, they welcomed them at first, they then are making all of these various rules that make life incredibly difficult for the stranger to the point of abuse, and in the end, the result is that the stranger turns on you. If you, if you common trope in a lot of 
films or literature of the idea of exploitation, uh, the trickle-down theory of exploitation, which is to say uh, these people in Dogville are at the lower end of the spectrum, and yet when it comes time, our, our tendency as human beings, when we're in a powerless state, is to say if we ever had power, we would act more nobly. Right. But then, in, in fact, we internalize mirror the oppression of us onto the people that are even weaker than us. And so perhaps we can make, I want to be careful about being too careful about Norway and Islam because I think his comments are more topical for today in response to, you know, what happened in Norway. Uh, right. The film is, you know, a couple years older, but I, I think he's certainly then saying part of the human experience is this tendency for people to group together, find power in the mob, painful power in the mob, and then turn on the weakest and the most vulnerable. And perhaps during the time of Dogville with the American montage, there's like, that's a quality of American imperialism or whatever. We all we all tend to think of ourselves as good people, but we're all bullies, you know? And then now extending that to Norway or wherever to sort of say, you know, a lot of people pride themselves on we're good people, we're good people. You know, how many times in the first part of the film does it say they're good people, but really then have the weak and the powerless and end up exploiting them? Of course, if we read it that way, one of the things that troubles me about the ending of the film is that they don't really have power. That is, all of their fears about what's going to happen if Grace gets found there end up being end up being realized. It is very dangerous for them to have Grace. They do end up dying as a result of her coming to the town. Now, you know, granted, it's as a result of what they've done with her in the town, but there is there seems to be this notion of wanting to have it both ways. On the one hand, this is about how we can, you know, people who are afraid get pushed into dehumanizing things. Doing The mob would do things like Nazi Germany that they wouldn't normally do out of fear. And yet, on the other hand, we want to say it's about how people who are secure and feel safe will end up being the most, the most egregious in the way that they exploit the helpless. It seems to me like there's this double standard or this confusion going on here on the one hand, like a more nuanced artist would really tie in or explore the way of rather than just they're good people or they're not good people, rather really explore in a more meaningful way, can fear or danger make people who might otherwise be good do horrific things rather than just saying, oh, these people are always horrific and any opportunity will, will bring it out. And that might be the difficulty that, well, A, the form, Spartan allegorical form, that might be part of the problem of going in that direction. Because traditionally, and every allegory you've ever seen, the characters are not nuanced and not well-rounded. Part of the, the genre of an allegory is that various characters represent something pretty statically. They're stock. Uh, they are they represent an abstract idea. And that right. grace is supposed to represent grace. And then, you know, she pretty much does until all the way at the end of the film and then it's your 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 twist ending is that Grace suddenly turns on it and 
it's hard for me to not, if I'm going to give a theological or allegorical reading, it, not to read that as sort of saying, you know, grace is freely given to everyone until they reject it, at which point we're judged and there's vengeance. And so, I mean, there's ways in which you can sort of rip it or bend it or pretzel it into a, almost a Christian allegory, but the depiction of James Kahn, the father, as being this bloodthirsty person doesn't resonate to me with the Christian allegory. And I keep going back to Grace's pleas for grace or forgiveness seem to me to be very half-hearted. It's, it's like, yeah, the father talks her into vengeance, but once he does, she takes a kind of relish in it. Yeah, and you, you bring up a very troublesome point for you know someone wanting to read it allegorically, which is that father-daughter relationship between the mobster and Grace. Certainly from a Christian perspective, God the Father is the one who gives grace to us, so therefore you would think that would be the connection, but yeah, I mean, he's a mobster, he's a criminal, he's bloodthirsty, he's very obviously has done many bad things in the past, and how are we to reconcile that in this in this story? Um, I mean, that, that is certainly an area where I came to a screeching halt. Just, I think you can, you know, I mean, there's that parable in the Bible where Jesus talks about, you know, the vineyard owner, you know, sending the overseer and the occupants kick out and abuse him. And so the vineyard owner says, I'll, I'll send my son, surely they'll respect him. And they kill the son. And Jesus says at the end of the parable, and what do you think is going to happen when the owner of the vineyard comes? So, I mean, there is that notion of, on a very broad level, if we reject grace or if we reject God's Son, eventually there will be a judgment in Christian theology. But certainly the character of Jesus as is portrayed in the New Testament and the character of God, to me, is one of, I take no joy in the death of the wicked, that that's something that's like, until the very end, I'm going to give people every opportunity and not just be like, it's, it's almost like a way of, hanging you with your own rope, maybe, of sort of saying, like, um, okay, well, you know, your punishment's going to be more horrific because I'm going to point out to you, you had an opportunity. It's not like I didn't give you a second opportunity. So I think you can wrench it into an allegory or a Christian allegory. But that allegory seems to me to sort of get some of the details of Christian theology right, but miss the, you know, larger meaning of some of these parables or even of the character of the participants in these parables. Speaking of wrenching, the you know the, this part of our conversation started with mentioning the Norway attacks and Anders Bering Breivik. His listing this movie as one of his top three. I believe the others were one of them was the movie Three Hundred, and there was some other hyperviolent film that was up there in the top three too. One of the things, I, as I was thinking about this, because obviously one of the one of the issues Van Trier was wrestling with in this interview was, what do you make of this? This idea that this person who had all sorts of anti-immigrant, anti-government feeling that led him to these attacks, what do we make of the fact that he found something in this film? So far, the various readings that we have suggested 
I don't, I can't make them fit with his ideas. Now, granted, we're trying to understand a mind that has done something that I think most of us just find abhorrent and not able to be understood anyways. But what is it about Dogville that could possibly be inspiring to this kind of a person? Gotcha. So so you're saying in, in some senses, not only you're having a hard time squaring the movie you saw with Von Trier's interpretation of it, but also you're having a hard time squaring the movie you saw with Brevik's interpretation of it. Or assumed interpretation of it, yeah. Assumed interpretation of it, yeah. I I think you're right that in in some ways that's a rabbit hole that leads nowhere because deranged mind can can end up reading it who who knows, you know, and in some ways then I I think there's many previous anecdotes in, in history of film or art about people who have been inspired by various works or whatever where they clearly misread it. And I mean, the one thing I think is interesting about that question is that uh, the way that Von Trier goes about defending himself or his work of art is he doesn't really go down the route of saying, hey, an artist is not responsible for how someone misreads his work of art. He says, in a sense, well, this was a misreading. You know, an artist can't be responsible for this work of art if they misread the work of art. And and that seems to me to be almost a dangerous precedent because the, the defense is not like, hey, I'm not responsible for what someone who watched my film does. It, it's like, hey, he misread my film. Uh, and right. that puts, to me, the argument on whether or not the interpretation of the film justifies this action. Whereas I want to say, even if the interpretation, even if he read the film correctly, it, it's still not the artist's fault that someone acts out on it. it. That doesn't rise to the level of an inciting act, to use the, the American thing. I mean, the only real connection I might see for someone like Brevik is that it ultimately, to me, the film ultimately says that human nature is unregenerate, is evil, is beyond repair, or can't be helped. If you get a line like the James Conn mobster father saying, dogs can be taught many things, but not if you forgive them every time they act according to their nature. So, you know, the film is in some ways saying human nature is, is, is evil, and the only way that it can be corrected, you know, the only way that it can be changed is through punishment, because that's the only thing that dogs or animals or unthinking creatures respond to. And so if we want to make the world a better place, we have to, you know, punish those who are perpetrating evil. I mean, I guess I could see how you get from A to B in terms of watching the film, but you're still going to have to have a deranged mind to, to sort of say, jump from that to I'm one of the persons then who gets to decide who needs to be punished or who's beyond it because somehow or another I'm immune from the critique that's put on all of society or all of human nature. He very carefully, as you're following the story through and following the arc that we talked about between, you know, watching these people slowly and incrementally distance what they're, what they mean and what they say. I think one of the things that that long, the, the length of the movie does is it allows Von Trier to show that distancing in a very natural progression. Yeah. As an illustration of how that kind of dangerous um, development takes place, it seems to me somewhat realistic 
it's not yeah. just jumping from thing to thing. It's a very organic development. Right. I, I mean, one of the things I'll say in defense of the length, I remember a comment that my wife, Cindy, made after the first time she watched The Godfather, the movie The Godfather, which is also a long film. But she said, you know, in the portrait of any any time a film is about moral deterioration, whether of an individual or a group of people, it, it, she said, you know, the film aptly, she's talking about The Godfather, the film aptly illustrated for her that no one just wakes up one day and says, I think I'll go to hell today. That usually right. the path to moral degeneration is not one big, huge leap off of a moral abyss. It's a little compromise followed by another little compromise followed by another little compromise until almost the person who does it doesn't know how they got there. And they wake up one day and they're doing things that they never would have dreamed that they had done at the beginning of the film. And so, you know, you might make a defense for the length of the film by sort of saying it aptly shows that moral deterioration is a bit-by-bit, step-by-step process that sort of numbs you to the consequences or awareness of your growing state of moral anarchy or decay. And however we might read the final allegory of the film, I think I would agree that in addition to showing us the town incrementally becoming more and more degenerate, I think the film also does show us incrementally how grace could get to that point. Even if the final change does seem rather sudden by the end of that film as an audience I think we're right we're right there with her and totally understanding why she would want revenge mm-hmm. yep I think that 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 really sums up the, the the central sort of artistic or moral failure of the film in the way that he's going which is to say I think it's one of those films that depends on the complicity of the viewer that the viewer mm-hmm. has to vicariously participate in the taking of revenge, but then to be really successful in those, what I call complicity films, then that vicarious participation then has to be followed by a condemnation where the viewer says, oh, I am condemning myself because if I'm honest, I did it too. And, and I think that by the end, we didn't participate because we didn't participate vicariously in the violations of grace but we're horrified by them, we justify the vengeance of it or we understand it or we approve of it. But then nowhere then is our complicity in the taking of vengeance ever called into question in a way that I think Von Trier suggests that it is or that it would be or that he wanted it to be. Yes, I agree. And I think that's a great place to end our our episode. Thank you for listening to The Thin Place on Film Geek Radio. If you have a comment on our show or would like to make a suggestion for a film for us to discuss, please send us an email at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also find more of Ken's reviews at onemorefilmblog.com, and you can also follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Moorfield. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!